0: The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. While Pastor Matt is on a missions trip in Utah, our discipleship pastor, Pastor Lou Dawson, will be discussing Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talking about the renewing of our minds. Let's join Lou now in his sermon. I'm
1: to we'll start off today's message a little bit differently. Right off the bat, I want to ask you guys, how many of you believe that God has been very, very merciful to you? Yeah, beyond merciful. Exactly, I can relate to that. Well, I'm going to pick on somebody. And Ralph, you look like a good victim. You raise your hand. Welcome to being a sermon illustration victim, by the way, Ralph. Why do you think the Lord has been merciful to you? Why do you you think that, Ralph?
0: <laughs> Without God's grace, you know, his name, that his wrath, his anger mm-hmm. would be a blessing because of his
1: sin. Yeah, amen.
0: is greater. You know, yeah,
1: sin. yeah. Amen to that. You know, I think the Apostle Paul would give a hearty amen to, you know, to what Ralph said there. Regarding God's great mercy, Paul said this. He said, but God, being... Oh, you got the wrong slide here. Do I keep going forward here, Tom? Keep going. Ah, there it is. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And though it's certainly exhilarating to think about God's great mercy, it's even more important that we respond to it as we live our everyday lives. And the challenge for each of us this morning then becomes taking this abstract concept of God's mercy and translating that into action. Well, fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul did just that. In the book of Romans, Paul spent the first 11 chapters of the book detailing God's great mercy for us and how it's available to us by faith in Christ. And then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul laid out how mercy must work its way into action in our lives. And at the intersection of these two parts of the book of Romans, Paul gives a memorable two-verse summary of how God's mercy translates into practice. And this morning we're going to tear apart these two verses in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the title of this morning's Mercy is this morning's sermon is Responding Properly to God's Grace and Mercy. So turn with me to Romans chapter twelve, verses one and two, and read along with me. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now the first thing that we see in this passage are two reasons for properly responding to God's mercy. And these are in verse 1. Now interestingly, in most of your translations, you'll notice that the first word in verse 1 is the word, therefore. And in the language that the Bible was originally written in, in Greek, the first word in verse 1 is actually, I urge. And unlike in English, in Greek, the word order is used frequently to emphasize something. And putting this word first meant that the Apostle Paul was emphasizing this idea. You see, this matter of properly responding to God's mercy was very important to Paul. And he used all of his apostolic authority to, to urge his readers, to plead with them, to beg them to properly respond. Now Paul's not really, he's not wagging his finger in the face of the Romans, saying, now you guys really need to get your act together in this regard. No, the word that Paul uses here, it means, it has the idea of, of coming alongside somebody and putting your arm around them and then appealing to them. It's the same thing we do with our children when we really want to get across something that's really important. We put our arm around them, and we look them straight in the eye, and we say, this is really important. Please listen and obey what I have to say. Paul's essentially saying to the Romans, hey, what I'm going to tell you next is absolutely critical for you to understand. And I love you guys so much, that I'm urging you to listen carefully and to put this into practice. And this is the first reason we see for properly responding to God's mercy. You see, the Apostle Paul knew the importance of the proper response to God's mercy and urged the Romans to listen and obey. Now, secondly, in verse 1, we've already noticed the word therefore, and as we always do when we see a therefore, we need to figure out... What's the therefore, therefore? That's exactly it. So we've got to look at that. Well, as we talked about earlier, Paul connects the therefore in this passage with the mercy of God. All of this book of Romans up through chapter 11 has detailed this great mercy. And make no mistake, Paul and all of us desperately needed God's mercy. In Romans chapter 3, Paul lays out our hopeless condition very well. He said, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there's not even one. But in spite of our rebelliousness and our utter hopelessness, Paul details how God lovingly and mercifully intervened in Romans chapter five verses eight through nine. And you're very familiar with this verse, I'm sure. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Wow, we deserve wrath. And God mercifully saved us from hell by means of paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. And this is at the very heart of the gospel message. So back to the text we're studying in Romans 12, reason number two for properly responding to God's great mercy is simply out of gratefulness to God for that great mercy. Now having set forth two reasons why we should properly respond to God's mercy, Paul spelled out what are these proper responses to God's mercy in the second half of verse 1 and on into verse 2. Notice what Paul said in the middle of verse 1. He urges the Romans to present their bodies as sacrifices. Now the picture that Paul paints with this metaphor is very deeply rooted in Judaism. When the Lord instructed the people of Israel about offering animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, notice how it's phrased here. The Lord commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness at Sinai. Now comparing this with Romans 12 verse 1, notice that Paul uses very similar language. We're to present ourselves to the Lord as sacrifices. And the similarity is quite deliberate on Paul's part. But lest you think that Paul is telling all of us that we need to sit down, tie our hands behind our back, and somehow have our throats slit, which is not a good thing, he tells us that we are to be Living sacrifices. And we still need to figure out, though, what that living sacrifice exactly what it is. Now, to understand this picture, we need to consider what Paul meant when he spoke of presenting their bodies. To the Jewish mind, the offering of the body involved the whole being. The body, the soul, and the spirit were all quite closely linked in Jewish thinking. And thus this offering that Paul urges them involved their whole person giving themselves to the Lord. It meant offering their arms and their their legs and their mouths and even their thoughts and their priorities and their will and their emotions. Everything was to go on the altar. That was all part of the offering. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul used this concept of presenting their bodies to the Lord again. He said this, he said, do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, or to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. But Paul's metaphor doesn't really allow us to completely separate this living sacrifice from death. A death does occur. The death is a death to self. It's a death to me, me, me. This is the sacrifice that Paul is talking about when he commented to the Galatians. He said this, he said, look, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ live in me. And this death to self is at the heart of the living sacrifice that Paul urged the Romans to perform. In practical terms, it meant that they were to cease living to please themselves and to begin living to please and glorify God. In this regard, it's interesting to note the verse that immediately preceded our text today. Here's Romans chapter 11, verse 26. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, Paul didn't live to please himself. He lived to bring glory and honor to the Lord. This was his number one commitment in life. Number one. Look at what he commented to the Philippian believers. Look at this. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that with all boldness Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look what he commanded the Corinthians. He said, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From Paul's perspective, and even from the perspective of Jesus himself, This, what we're talking about right here, was the normal Christian life. Look what Jesus said. He said this. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Is this sacrifice what it takes to be saved? No. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. But make no mistake, this is the expected direction of the Christian life after salvation. The Old Testament character Isaac provides us with one of the greatest pictures of what it means to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. Back in Genesis 22, you may remember that the Lord asked Abraham to take his son Isaac and hike out three days into the wilderness and offer his beloved son up as a sacrifice. So Abraham set out on the long journey to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac in tow. And Isaac knew they were going out to offer a sacrifice. The only thing he didn't know is that he was going to be the sacrifice. But there was a point when Isaac certainly understood what was going to happen. Abraham built an altar. Uh, he took the wood. He arranged it on the altar. And then he tied up Isaac. And he laid Isaac on top of that wood and prepared to slay him. Isaac had seen these sacrifices before and certainly knew what about, was about to happen, that he was going to die. Now what's so amazing about this whole story is that this whole thing occurred when Abraham was probably about 120 years old. He was an old guy. Now Isaac, on the other hand, he was probably in his early 20s. He was a young guy at the peak of his his power and his strength. Isaac could have very easily overpowered Abraham or done any number of things to avoid becoming this sacrifice we all know how the story ends. At the last second, the Lord provided a substitute sacrifice and Isaac's life was spared. But the inescapable conclusion is that Isaac willingly submitted himself to his father and willingly offered himself up to be a sacrifice. In fact, with Paul being an Old Testament scholar, he's very likely that this picture could have be what he had in mind when he wrote Romans 12, verse 1. Well, getting back to our text, Paul goes on at the end of Romans 12, 1, and further describes this sacrifice with four adjectives. Living, holy, acceptable to God, and your spiritual service of worship. Now, the sacrifice that Paul is urging here to make is living in that as Christians... We have been made alive in Christ. We were dead in our transgressions, but now we are alive in Christ. And the sacrifice is holy in that Paul is urging us. It involves setting ourselves apart, of holying ourselves for God's use. And it's also holy because we were made saints. We were made holy ones by the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice is acceptable to God in that it's pleasing to him. Presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice is what brings joy to the Lord. And lastly, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices is our spiritual service of worship. Now those of you with New King James versions or King James versions, you'll note that this phrase is rendered, which is your reasonable service. And the word here could actually be translated either way, and both meanings are are actually accurate. In light of the Lord's great mercy, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices is the only thing that really makes sense. It's eminently reasonable. But this offering that Paul is urging is also at at the heart of spiritual worship. If you and I want to truly worship the Lord with everything we have, presenting Himself Presenting ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice is true worship. It's better and more important than any song we could ever sing to the Lord. Such a sacrificial offering, it it shouts of the greatness of God and our willing, loving submission to Him. It is true worship. Sadly, few Christians today are willing to make this radical sacrifice. And yes, it is radical. Putting our dreams and our desires and our thoughts and our ambitions and our emotions, everything that we have, putting them on the altar and sacrificing them to Him. It involves a a fundamental reorientation of our priorities and affections away from ourselves And then it means allowing the Lord to bring glory to Himself by using us for whatever He chooses. Yes, it is radical. But it's also biblical. You see, the first proper response that Paul urges is that the Roman Christians present themselves to the Lord, willingly die to self, and choose to live his glory. Let's move on and look at the second proper response to God's mercy in the first part of verse 2. Now in the first proper response, Paul urged the Romans. In this second proper response to God's mercy, Paul commands them, and do not be conformed to this world. Now the idea that Paul uses, which is translated "conform." that word is a very interesting word that's only used twice in the New Testament. And the idea behind this word is that of being shaped or molded, like like taking Play-Doh and shaping it into a Play-Doh figurine in a mold. Ever done that when you're working with the kids in there? That's what he's talking about there. The word that Paul uses, which is translated world, does not mean the rock that you and I are standing on right now. The word that Paul uses could be better translated as age and refers to the wicked, sinful world system that the Romans and us are surrounded by. And thus, Paul is commanding the Romans not to allow themselves to be shaped or molded into an image reflective of the thinking and values Of the age they live in. One translator paraphrased this verse, I'm going to read it to you. He says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And I think that pretty well captures the meaning of what Paul was trying to convey here. So, Paul's second proper response to God's mercy was that he commanded the Roman Christians to avoid being conformed to the thinking and the values of this age. Now, thinking about how this might apply to us, the question that naturally arises is, well, how do you think that we as Christians are being molded to the thinking and values of this age? And I want to throw that question out to you. How do you think that we Christians are molded by the thinking and values of our age? What do you guys think? What's that? TV, okay. Any other thoughts on how we're thinking, how we're molded? What's that? Internet's another one, yeah. Good. Any other thinking on that? Hollywood. Hollywood. So you mean movies, TV, all that kind of stuff. Any other thoughts on that? How are we molded? What? What's that? Politics too. Certainly. Music's a big one. That's a huge one. The The educational system too. The educational system. Relativism. Relativism. Taught in the schools, and we're immersed in that. In all forms of media, we're, we're, in, we're uh, infiltrated in that. You know, as some of you mentioned, it seems like the primary means of conveying the values of this age seems to be the secular entertainment media. The images, the thoughts, the values of this age are all around us in the forms of Music, television, movies, video games, the internet, etc. And to a great extent, the degree to which we immerse ourselves in the secular entertainment media will greatly influence the degree to which we end up being conformed to the values of this age. If we want to minimize the influence of this age on us, we must be careful about what secular media we allow into our lives and how much of it we allow to come in. Both of these factors are very important, and both of these factors need to be carefully considered and thought through. If you and I thoughtlessly immerse ourselves in secular entertainment, the thoughts and the images we program into our minds will eventually work their way out into actions. This is just unavoidable. We must deliberately and proactively think this through how we're going to minimize our immersion in secular media. Now moving on in verse 2, we see the third proper response to God's mercy. And this response is again in the form of a command in contrast to allowing ourselves to be conformed to the values of their age, Paul commands the Christians to instead be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And again, Paul chooses his words very carefully. The Greek word translated here as transformed is only used in three other places in the New Testament. It's used twice in the Gospels referring to Jesus being transfigured or transformed before Peter, James, and John. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul commented this. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in, in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So the transformation that Paul is talking about here in our text is about being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus himself. And according to Paul, how does this transformation come about? It comes by the renewing of our mind. Now, another question for you all, guys. How do you renew our minds like Paul commands? How do we do that? What do you think? What's that? Studying God's Word well, God, and, living and living it out. Imagine that. Studying God's Word and living it out. Any other thoughts? Keeping your mind pure. Keeping your mind pure. Absolutely. Anything else? <laughs> Word in, word out. Garbage in, garbage out, word in, word out. Boy, what a good statement that is. I think I'm going to write that one in here. That's really what it boils down to. You see, this renewal is largely bought, brought about by immersing ourselves in truth, and in particular, the truth of God's Word. Notice the contrast here. Paul's essentially saying to the Romans, look, don't allow yourself to be conformed to the thinking and the values of this age but instead be transformed as you allow your mind to be renewed by the thinking and values of the age to come by the truth of God's word. So Paul's third proper response to God's mercy was that he commanded the Roman Christians to pursue being transformed by renewing their mind with the truth of God's word. Now let's think for a moment about applying this to our lives today. Just as we deliberately and proactively think through how to avoid being immersed in the values of this age, we must also deliberately and proactively think through how we are going to immerse ourselves in God's truth. So if we're going to properly respond to God's mercy, we must allow God's truth to speak to us daily through His Word. This could take the form of a daily quiet time or a study time or any number of things. But I also think we must deliberately develop a discipline of memorizing Scripture so that we can meditate on it. This meditation on Scripture, like Will said, throughout the day, chewing on it is what causes the truth to seep into the depths of our souls and into our minds. In such meditation on truth, it invariably changes not only our thinking, but even more importantly, it also changes our affections. And when our affections have been changed, we will love what the Lord loves, will hate what He hates, and our great joy will be to obey Him in all the things that He commands. Well, so far we've looked at two reasons for properly responding to God's mercy, and we've also looked at three proper responses to that mercy. Now at the end of verse 2, we're going to see the results of properly responding to God's mercy. Notice that after his two commands at the beginning of verse 2, Paul said, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the word prove that Paul uses here has it behind it, the idea of of testing. And as a result of methodical, almost scientific testing, proving that something is genuine and valuable. And in this case, it means testing God's will. And according to Paul, this testing is done as we renew our minds with truth. And only as our minds are renewed are we able to properly assess the genuineness and the value of God's will for us. You see, Satan wants us to be repulsed by God's will. He wants us to see it as needlessly restrictive, as keeping us from really having a good time. But according to Paul, as we renew our minds with truth, we will actually test the quality of God's will and prove to ourselves and to others around us that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. God's will is good in the sense that it conforms to all that God is, and He is good. And since He is good, His will cannot be anything else but 100% good. And as we deliberately renew our minds with truth, we also find that God's will is acceptable. Now, Paul's already used this word in verse 1. And it means that we prove that God's will is pleasing to Him. In this process, God's will also becomes pleasing to us as well. And doing His will becomes our great joy as we lovingly volunteer ourselves to be His bond slaves forever. And lastly, as we diligently renew our minds with the truth, we prove that God's will is perfect. It's whole, it's complete, it lacks nothing and it's in perfect order. Thus, there's no reason to ever fear submitting to it. According to Paul, as we properly respond to God's mercy by renewing our minds with the truth, the result will be that we test and prove that God's will is good, it's pleasing to him, and it's perfect in every way. Well, as we conclude the sermon today, I'd like to leave you with Three important questions that arise out of the text. First, today will you present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice? Starting today, will you willingly let go of your own will? And will you choose to live for God's glory? This is probably the most important commitment you can make as a Christian? And second, will you refuse to be conformed to this age? Again, starting today, will you carefully think through your intake of secular entertainment media and purposefully limit your intake of it, realizing that this intake tends to conform you to the thinking and the values of the culture in which we live? And third, will you choose to renew your mind with God's word? Starting today, will you make plans to allow the Lord to renew your mind through daily reading and meditation on the scriptures, realizing that this renewal leads to the transformation of ourselves into the image of Christ? You see... These commitments are the truly the proper, sensible, worshipful responses to the vast mercy of God, lavished on us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, all of us know... In the depths of our souls, how incredibly merciful you have been. We richly deserved your wrath, Lord, but because of your great love, you lavished mercy on us. And we know that today we must respond to that mercy. Give us your grace, Lord, so that we might offer all of ourselves to you as living sacrifices. So that we might deliberately forsake all that sways us towards the values of this age. And so that we might deliberately program truth, the truth of your word, into our mind. We ask all of this, Lord, so that we might be transformed into your image. And that whether by life or by
0: death, we might bring you praise and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot O-R-G. That's www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org That's Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.